Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you're about to listen to is from our series, Awaken. If you're joining us for the first time, I wanna be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. One more time, let's not give God a golf clap. Let's give him the praise that is rightly due him. I was glad when they said unto me, let us come to Hope Church on a Thursday night. Unbelievable, packed house uh, in a unchurched city uh, here to not listen to a preacher uh, or to hear cool music, but to worship a resurrected and living Savior who's in the world today. We give him praise, honor, and glory. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, as you're making your way there, let me just say how honored I am to have been extended the invitation to come and to share with you uh, during this special, dedicated, uh, focused time of the year uh, where we have chosen as our theme, Awaken. Uh, For our time of study this evening, I want to talk about what it means to be awakened to true meaning and greatness in life, where it cannot be found and where it can be found and how we access that. And to help us with that is Matthew chapter 11. It's just so good being here, so good being with the team uh, and with uh, founding Pastor Vance Pittman. Uh, I just love him. Love everything about him but the fact that he's an Alabama football fan. (laughs) But I'm from God's country, Georgia. And Georgia knows how to humble some folks. And so the kingdom of light overcame the kingdom of darkness a couple weeks ago. Let me stop right now before I say too much. Matthew chapter 11. I heard an amen over there. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Matthew chapter 11. Pick me up in verse 1. Matthew writes these words. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that would be John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, pay attention now, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, verse 11, do not miss it. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's just a heavy statement. So if you're here tonight, I understand not everybody would call themselves followers of, of Jesus, but if you're here and you would call yourself followers of Jesus, you're in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just said the goat, greatest of all time, not LeBron James, John the Baptist, and he says if you're in the kingdom of heaven, If you're the least, you're greater than him. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. The violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge. You didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. One more time, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I want to talk this evening about becoming the goat. Becoming the goat. Father, we have spoken to you. We have literally hailed your name. We have worshipped you. We have exalted you in singing this evening. And you are worth all that we have declared and ascribed to you. But Father, we dare not leave your presence having just spoken to you, we need you to speak to us. And so, Father, would you speak to us through your word, through me, your servant, this evening. God, the task before me is beyond my ability. There's there's no amount of articulation that can get anyone saved. My feeble attempts that illustrations and explanation and application just isn't enough to move the needle. But God, your word says that that when you speak, it won't return void. So would you speak to us this evening? Give us ears to hear. Stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my tongue those things you'd have us know, say, and do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Some of us in this room have read the literary classic, The Old Man and the Sea. 
It's written by the legend Ernest Hemingway. The protagonist in this story, if you can remember, is a guy by the name of Santiago who is, as you can imagine, an old man who one day decides to go fishing out at, you guessed it, the sea. Now, for 84 consecutive days, Santiago catches nothing. Parenthetically, if if I'm out fishing for 84 minutes and I don't catch nothing, God ain't in it. 84 consecutive days, he catches nothing. But lo and behold, that 85th day, he not only catches a fish, he catches the largest fish he's ever seen. He, he catches this huge marlin. As he's struggling to bring and reel this fish in, he is thinking to myself, now finally the praise and the accolades that have eluded me all of my life. Wait, wait till my friends see this catch at shore. They will finally give me my due. But there's one problem. Santiago is an old man. He does not have the strength or the capacity or the resources to reel this fish in. So the best he can do is to bring it close to the boat and tie it while it's still in the water to the boat. And then he takes a spear and he kills the marlin. But this introduces a greater problem. Because on his way back to shore, with the catch of his life, blood is leaking and it attracts sharks. And these sharks, Ernest Hemingway notes, begin to eat away at this marlin to the point when Santiago reaches the shore, he has nothing to show for his 85 days. The greatness that he thought was in his grasp is gone. Now, literary scholars tell us that Ernest Hemingway is actually being autobiographical. You see, Ernest Hemingway writes this book towards the end of his life. In fact, if memory serves me right, Old Man in the Sea is actually released uh, not long after he dies. Ernest Hemingway is using Santiago to speak of the frustrations in his own life. If you know anything about Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Ernest Hemingway seemed to have checked all the boxes. He seemed to have caught all of the figurative marlins of this world. Wealth, check. Romance, check. Success, check. And yet at the end of his life, he's an alcoholic. He's depressed. And he ultimately dies by suicide. Don't you see what Hemingway is showing us through Santiago is a timeless lesson in life that is not unique to his writing, but is anchored in the truth of Scripture. There is never any long-term satisfaction in the marlins of this life. Some of you are here today. And you're thinking, if I can just make X amount of dollars, if I can just have that relationship, if I can only get 
pregnant if I can only live in that zip code. If I can only drive that car, I will be satisfied. Take it from Hemingway. Take it from Jesus. There is no long-term eternal satisfaction, significance, or greatness found in this life. Some of the most frustrated people I know are those who have checked all the boxes and have come up empty. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is written by what most scholars would tell us is a billionaire many times over. In fact, there's a clinical psychiatrist who said, if I didn't know better reading Ecclesiastes, I would diagnose its author with depression. A depressed billionaire? And yet Solomon is saying, vanity of vanities, it is all empty. There is no long-term greatness, meaning, value, or significance in the stuff of this life. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, well, let me just, let me just try. <laughs> I mean, let, just put a couple billion in my hand. Let me tell you that on my own. as we come to our text, our text is all about this idea of significance and meaning. It's, it's all about greatness. Hear me, some of you may get disturbed by this idea, this word greater or greatest. Because when you think of that term, you are thinking of of Muhammad Ali and the self-proclaimed greatest of all time and stories of his own kind of narcissism are legendary. One of my favorite Ali stories is the time he was on an airplane and they were going through turbulence and the captain says, I need everybody to sit down and fasten their seatbelts. And um, the flight attendant noticed that Ali hasn't fastened his seatbelt. And so uh, she bends down, whispers in his ear so as not to embarrass him, Mr. Ali, please fasten your seatbelt. To which he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. which she responds, Superman don't need no airplane. Now, please, fasten your seatbelt. He was not known for his humility. So some of you all, when we have the greatest conversation, you think of Ali, and maybe it just kind of feels like it's a carnal thing. Or maybe when we think of the greatest of all time, again, uh, we, we, we're thinking about those legendary discussions in basketball, and some of you all are misconceived, and you think it's LeBron James, but the redeemed of the Lord, no, it's Michael Jordan. And so we understand that. I knew this was a spirit-filled church. Uh, uh, Simone Biles has taught us that maybe we should lengthen the greatest conversation to not just what you do in your performance as an athlete, but maybe greatness is also taking care of your mental health and knowing when to sit out and be a good teammate. We, we have these GOAT discussions all the time. I, I want you to understand in our text, not once does Jesus critique greatness. In fact, Jesus wants us to be great. What he critiques is the metrics we use. Jesus wants us to live life to the full. He did not give his all for us to settle for mediocrity. Jesus wants us to live a life rich with meaning and value and significance. The problem is where we look to find it. 
Jesus is going to show us several places where greatness cannot be found. In fact, as our text opens up, what you need to understand is Jesus' cousin is a guy by the name of John the Baptist who has found himself embroiled in the political scandal of his day. There's a guy by the name of King Herod. King Herod is king of the Jews. He, he is exercising a modicum of power under Roman authority. King Herod was not known for his morals. King Herod would ultimately seduce his own brother's wife, leading to the dissolution of their marriage and their divorce. Here's John the Baptist. He sees a political leader living in immorality. He does not keep his mouth shut. What does he do? He speaks truth to power. He calls it out. And what does Herod do? He throws him in jail. Watch this now. And while he's in jail, Jesus says... No one born of women is greater than John the Baptist while he's in jail. Lesson number one, greatness can never be found in my circumstances. If my circumstances were an indicator light of greatness, then John the Baptist should not be called the greatest ever. He's incarcerated. He's in jail. I was talking some time ago uh, to uh, my wife and I have, a, have some friends of ours. They've just been going through a difficult time, lost their job and, and all that that comes with it and a whole lot of family turmoil. And I, I picked up the phone and I called them and just, just to check in on them, just to see how, how they're doing. And the husband wasn't around. And so I talked to the wife and just said, hey, look, I just want you to know my wife and I are, are praying for you. How's it going? And she just painted an even more bleak picture. She says, I, it's, not, it's not going well. In fact, we're about to get evicted from our home. We don't necessarily know where we're going to be living. The financial difficulties, the struggle is real. The, the family drama has just kind of ticked up a couple of notches. She just painted this really dark picture. And then she just kind of inserted this zinger of a line. She goes, what God is teaching us in this moment is that circumstances are a horrible foundation to build your life on. Circumstances are a horrible foundation to build your life on. Friends, I want you to know that's exactly where some of you all are right now. You're, you're just like our friends. You're going through it. Maybe you're in the middle of a job transition and there's too much month at the end of the money. Maybe you're dealing with a, a wayward child. Maybe you're dealing with a health crisis. Maybe you're dealing with the loss of a loved one. Maybe you are in the crowd this size. Someone's probably dealing with and struggling with issues of infertility. Maybe you're dealing with the shame of your past. You need to understand that your circumstances are never a final commentary on what God thinks about you. I want you to understand, though, that works both ways. Some of you, you're on the other side of things, and things are going well for you. The money is flowing in. The, the, the marriage is going well. The, the, the children in a rare season are actually being compliant. I mean, life is going well for you right now. You need to be careful to not build your sense of joy and self-esteem on the finicky situations and circumstances of life. 
You need someone steady. You need someone that the scriptures call immutable. Someone who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore to hook your sense of of peace and satisfaction to. His name is Jesus. Now watch this. I want to press this even more. Listen. John is in jail, and while he's in jail, he sends his disciples in the midst of bleak circumstances, watch it now, and he says through his disciples to Jesus, hey, Jesus, are you the one? (laughs) Wait a minute, John. Are you questioning who Jesus is? You're questioning whether or not he's the Messiah? This is your cousin. In fact, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is in, is in uh, the early part of Luke. When, when John is in utero, his mother is pregnant with him. She goes to visit Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus. And upon John being in his mother's womb, sensing the presence of Jesus in his mama's womb, he starts doing backflips and cartwheels. And now you're going, are you the one? Wait a minute, John, you baptized Jesus. You were there when the heavens opened up and and the spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove and you heard a voice from heaven which says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now you're doubting? Ever been there? Ever? Ever been there? Some of y'all been going to church all your life. Some of y'all are church OGs like myself. I, I grew up in, in church, man. We, 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 we got to church. I grew up in a little chocolate church on South South Atlanta. We, we got to church about 9.30 in the morning, and we didn't leave till about 1.30-ish in the afternoon. No snack time, none of that. Kids these days, God bless them, they're so soft, man. Back in the day when I was growing, we didn't do snacks in church. I don't care how much church attendance you have. You may have even taught the Bible studies. You will have moments in your life where what you are going through is so in contradistinction to what you've studied and learned and taught that something in you will go, are you the one? Can we be real in Las Vegas? Ever been there? Ever had something in you that just questions, God, are you who you say you are? Is this Jesus stuff real? I love Jesus' response. Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, the disciples of John, look at it with me in verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. 
and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended my being. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. Why would John be offended? Because scholars tell us Jesus is sending John a cryptic message based on an earlier sermon that John heard based out of Luke chapter 4. Look at it with me, because in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this. This is earlier. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, liberty, liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is an earlier sermon. Now in his message, he quotes the same thing, but he leaves out one little part. He leaves out the part about the captives being set free. Now what I'm about to say to you, you ain't going to shout. What is Jesus saying when he leaves out the part, talking to a guy who's in jail about the liberty, about the the captives being set free? What is he leaving out? Yes, John, I am the one, and no, John, your situation will not change. I didn't think you'd shout on that. See, we want Jesus to be our little genie in a bottle. We want Jesus to be like a young, struggling actor who always has to audition for a gig in the reality show that is our life. We want Jesus to be a planet that orbits around us, the sun. Jesus, I'll follow you if you'll... Jesus, I'm at church tonight because I need you to. See, this is classic prosperity theology. And we get on people on TV about prosperity theology, but let's tell the truth, all of us are prosperity theologians. Prosperity theology is equation theology. It says, if I do good things over here, I'll get good outcomes over here. But our text teaches us that sometimes the equation doesn't work out. Sometimes you tithe and you give and you pray and you show up and you still are in jail. You're still dealing with tears. You're still dealing with cancer. And what God wants to know is, will you still serve me even when you don't understand? me. The world needs to see are an army of followers of Jesus Christ who are saying, though he slay me, yet will I follow him. I am not in this for the benefits package. I am not in it for what you might do because what you have done on a cross called Calvary is enough for me. And if you do nothing else for me, I will serve you until the day I die. May we be awakened to that reality. You know, I'm 48 years old and Doctor's visits kind of change a little bit. (laughs) You know, at some point, I'm going to get really bad news. At some point, you're going to get really bad news. Will you still worship him? Greatness is not found in my circumstances. 
But secondly, greatness is not found in my status. Greatness is not found in my status. So here's John sends his disciples, hey, Jesus, are you the one? Jesus has given this message, yes, I'm the one. No, you're not getting out of your situation, verse 6. And, and, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. By the way, if Jesus never offends you, your Jesus is too small. Now, verse 7, as they went away, I love it. So Jesus having this conversation with the disciples in the midst of a big crowd like this. Jesus now turns to speak to the crowd concerning John. I love verse 7. Hey, Hope, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. I love this. Whenever you saw an individual with soft clothing on, you knew that person was associated with the king. And more times than not, they were a courier for the king. That means they delivered messages to and from the king. So a man in soft clothing, you already knew. This is a very important man. And here is Jesus in talking about John the Baptist. That wasn't John. Here's how John rolled. Look at it with me. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. It says, now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. I love it. I love this. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, dad's hanging there with me. But imagine you're sitting at home one day and, and, and you're watching, I don't know, Alabama get beat by Georgia. You're watching TV and, and there's a knock on the door and you open the door and, and it's a... It's a dude, he looks a bit disheveled, bedhead. He's wearing kind of, you know, some funky stuff. You've never seen him before. He's dressed like John the Baptist. And, and he says, hey, hey sir, I, I've been hanging out with your daughter for a while. And, and I really care about her, love her a lot. I'm, I'm actually here to ask your permission to marry your daughter. And it's like, this is weird. I've never even heard of you before. Let me ask some, some, some questions. Um, uh, what do you do? I'm a preacher. Where's your church? Ah, uh, we don't really have a building. We're, we're in the middle of the wilderness. Well, where do you live? I kind of live next to my church in the middle of the wilderness. His breath stinks. And you find out this dude eats locusts and wild honey. You then Google him and find out he's on his way to jail. Undeterred, a week or two later, he hasn't gotten your permission, so he brings his cousin, 33-year-old person named Jesus. You say, hey, Jesus, what do you do? Well, I'm a preacher. Where do you live? Birds of the air have nests. Foxes have holes. Son of man has no place to lay his head. Are you married? No, I'm single. You Google him and find out he's about to be executed. You're probably going to say to both of these individuals, get out of my house, you're not worthy of my daughter. And yet they're the two most important people to have ever lived. Greatness is not found in status. Some of you think you're important because of what you drive. Some of you think you're important because of the kind of purse you wear. 
Some of you think you are important because of the size of your house, the school your kids go to. Nothing is wrong with a certain kind of car or the clothes or the material possessions. It's not wrong you having them, but it is wrong when they have you. Thirdly, greatness cannot be found in circumstances, it cannot be found in status, but thirdly, this text teaches us, greatness cannot be found in religion. It goes on to say, Truly I say to you, verse 11, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. Now, here's what you need to understand, especially those of you who may be new to the scriptures. There are four authorized biographies on the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them the Gospels. If you want to know one of the differences of them, look at the audience upon which those biographies are written. Matthew writes his Gospel. Watch it now. Matthew writes his Gospel to the Jews. You missed that. Matthew writes his gospel to religious people who are in church every week. They call it the synagogue. They go to the temple on high and holy days. They have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 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 Numbers, Deuteronomy. The average Jew gave about 19% of their annual income to the things of the Lord. Watch it now. He writes his gospel to religious people. It's his way of saying, religion ain't getting you to heaven. The gospel and religion are completely different. Religion works for approval. The gospel works from approval. Religion is about works. The gospel is about grace. The great tragedy of hell is there'll be many parking spaces with church attending, religious people, and Jesus picks up on this. He says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? And he says, John the Baptist, we're like, he and I were like playmates calling out to one another. Hey, we, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. This is an imagery of what they would do in weddings back in the day. In weddings back in the day, when you, when you heard the flute, that was your cue to, to Cupid shuffle. That, that was your cue to, cue to dance. He says, we sang a dirge. That's what you did at funerals. When you heard the dirge, you mourned. But here's what he's saying. We played the flute. We, we sang the dirge. And you, religious people, did not respond. Some of those farthest away from the cross are religious people. My prayer for you is that God would awaken your heart. Some of you, you're a metronome. You have your quiet time every single day. You give consistently. You don't even think about it. 
but God is here. He hasn't traveled the 18 inches here. You've got religion. You've got performance. There's no heart. Whitewashed graveyards full of dead men's bones. You look good. You know when to raise your hands. You know when to sit and to stand. You, 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 you know how to talk. You, you know what to say. But there's no life there. There's no heart there. I know we're in Vegas, and I, I know this is typically where the younger brother hangs out, but, but the younger brother in the story of the prodigal, I, I believe that Jesus tells that story just as much about the older brother who's close to the father in proximity, who is dutiful, who is obedient, but there is still no connection. Is that you, friends? Notice what Jesus says about religious people. Now we come to one of the most complicated verses in all of Scripture, but in that context, we can rightly divide it. Here's what he's saying. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Oh my goodness, Jesus, what are you talking about? The context of what he is saying. He is talking to religious people who refuse to respond to the gospel message, and he's saying this. When you are a religious person who is coming to church, you're hearing the gospel and you do not respond, you do violence to the kingdom of heaven. So the greatest threat, if I read this right, to the kingdom of heaven, it ain't the immoral person out on the strip. It's the older brother who just comes and nods their head and goes through the motion. Those are the hell raisers. Who can just show up, go through the motions, and be a jerk of a husband? Who can just show up, sit under good, sound teaching for decades, and nothing changes? We need an awakening among dead religious people. Listen, I imagine I say to you, let's, let's go out for a steak dinner. I'm taking you out. I hear there's a great place down the street here called Hank's. I'm taking you out my dime. Now, l- let me let you in on a little secret with white, uh, uh, white people with black people. L- l- let me just let you in a little secret on how black people, we need to be discipled in ordering steaks. I don't know what it is about my people. Some of y'all are laughing because you know where this is going. You know right there. I, I know you know. You probably do it. My people don't know how to order a steak. I sit down with my people. I say, I'm going to pay for it. The waiter comes and they say, can't take your order. You go, yeah, let me have a filet. And I'm high-fiving you. Yes. It's a good use. Then the waiter has the nerve to say, how do you like it? And my people say, what? Well done. 
I said, let me stop you. You are wasting my money. You are ruining the experience. That cow did not die for you to burn it. White people are like, can I laugh at that? You can laugh. You can laugh. And I say, you can't do that, but you are bent on having it your way. You're doing violence to that cow. That's religious people. I don't care what this preacher says. I'm going to have it my way. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to just do what I want to do. And then we scratch our heads wondering why for some of us, for some of us, and I know we can't manufacture godly kids, I know that, but for some of us, it ain't rocket science. Where's greatness found? It ain't found in my circumstances. It ain't found in my status. It ain't found in my religion. Come on, Jesus. I mean, doesn't this feel like hyperbole to you? Does it feel like that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point? It's sort of like me telling my kids, I've told you a million times. You I mean you haven't told them a million times to take a You are exaggerating to make a point. So, really, Jesus, are you re- of everyone born? Really, John the Baptist, the greater, the, the greatest there ever was? What about Abraham, the father of our faith? who you showed up to, you, you, you gave him this promise, and he just ups and leaves. He's the, he's the father of the nation of Israel. John the Baptist is greater than him. Jesus says yes. But what about Moses, that legendary liberator and lawgiver who at 80 years of age steps out on faith and in the most seminal moment in the Old Testament, in great faith, opens up the Red Sea? Are you saying John the Baptist is greater than he? Yes. I mean, what about Rahab and great faith, what she does when the walls of Jericho are coming down? Are you saying John the Baptist is greater than she? What about David? Yes. Elijah and Elisha, they, they perform more miracles than John the Baptist. Yes, John is greater than them. What's the difference? The difference is that John the Baptist's life and ministry was inextricably tied to Jesus Christ. Abraham wasn't tied to Jesus. Moses wasn't tied to Jesus. Elijah and Elisha weren't tied to Jesus. 
John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He existed to prepare the way of the Lord. And that's why Jesus could say, not just John the Baptist, but if you are least in the kingdom of heaven, you are the greatest. Not because of your giving record, not because of your church attendance, not because of the amount of quiet times you've had, but because who your life is linked to. And it is linked not to religion, it is linked to Jesus Christ. It's the beginning and the end. That's where greatness is found. If you are fishing in any other waters but Jesus Christ, I promise you, you're going to come up empty. You can go out there, you can... You can do it all. You just live it up, but you will reach the same conclusion Solomon reached. Vanity of vanities. If it ain't Jesus, it ain't satisfying. I can tell you right now, he's the only one. You know, I pastored for 12 years in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm done. Memphis, Tennessee is always on that show, The First 48. It's just, it's just, don't get caught slipping in Memphis. But you know, of all the many murderers in Memphis, I can only name one. James Earl Ray. You know why I know James Earl Ray? Not because of what he looked like or the weapon he used, but because of who he killed. April 4th, 1968, he killed Martin Luther King, Jesus, uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He leaves a legacy because his life was intertwined with someone who had a legacy. If you want a legacy... Who's your life tied to? Brothers, I'm here to tell you, you're going to die. And we'll leave a little life insurance. My wife will sniff a little bit. She'll cash that check. <laughs> and she has some clear instructions not to spend it on the next dude. I will come up out this bad boy. Naked we came into this world. It ain't coming with us. We have one life that will soon be passed. Only what we've done for Christ will last. I don't have a deep message tonight. I just give you Jesus. Do you have him? I don't offer you religion. Do you have Jesus? I want to invite those who normally come and stand at the altar to pray. I, I, I want to pray 
tonight. Some of you are here and you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. It's the first time in church, maybe. I rarely come to church. You, you are real clear. You, you would not describe yourself even as a religious person. And tonight, we offer you Jesus. We believe in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. When Adam and Eve were looking around for a fig leaf to hide under, that God looked to this day and ordained. He navigated, he ordered your steps so that you would be here at this moment to hear this word. The Bible says the day you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. We are offering you Jesus. But we're at altar call. Yes, we want the irreligious to come, but I think, I think someone's here tonight and God is saying, I I need you to repent of your religion. I need you to repent of your do-goodism. I need you to repent of your religious arrogance and thinking your good choices somehow curry favor with God. No, the Bible says even on your best day, your righteousness is as filthy rags. What makes us righteous isn't our behavior. What makes us righteous is our Savior. And our behavior is a response to what he's already done for us on the cross.